Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. David has just passed a difficult test from the Lord that revealed to everybody who his heart really belonged to. Instead of uh, taking advantage of an unexpected and fortunate situation in which Saul could have easily been disposed of, David spared Saul's life without Saul even knowing that he'd been spared. Last week, as this story unfolded in 1 Samuel 24, David stood alone then in a great debate with 600 men, his men, because David let the man go who was trying to kill him. In pursuit of David in the wilderness of Engedi, Saul had entered that cave to, re- to relieve himself not knowing that David and his entire army, his entire force, were hiding farther back in the same cave. Arguing that this providence of God meant an easy way to get rid of King Saul, David's men were furious that David saw the situation much, much differently. In verses 6 and 7, we see explained what happened. David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David tore apart his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Last week we explored how Saul's vulnerable presence in this cave revealed two completely opposite viewpoints about what God's will was for David in this situation. Was this God's providential way of getting rid of the king that God himself had rejected? Or was this a test from the Lord that would reveal just how devoted to God David was. We saw that David was able to discern the difference between these positions, which is amazing in and of itself to most of us. But why? How could he tell the difference and know what to do? Because he understood that God had anointed Saul as king, meaning that Saul had been set apart to consec- and consecrated to God for this purpose. Therefore, to touch, to defile, to attack the anointed one was to approach the Lord himself and seek to defile, harm, and remove the Lord from his rightful place. In other words the office of king of Israel was seen as a manifestation of God's reign. It was God's responsibility to remove Saul whenever God saw fit. 
And as long as God allowed Saul to live and be in the king's office, even though David knew that he was anointed to be the next one, this meant that to strike against the king was to strike out at God himself. And we see very clearly that David's heart belonged to the king of kings himself. We also realize that that this has tremendous implications for how we think, or it should. The mere fact that God provides an opportunity to us, which most of us would call an open door, does not guarantee that the Lord intends for us to exercise it or go through that door. In other words, an open door is not, in and of itself, proof of God's will. As David got direction from his proper understanding of God's word concerning God's anointing of Saul, so we must understand God's word and the principles that are revealed there. And we closed last week with a quote from William Blakey that many of you have asked for since. Went like this To govern the will by a reverence for God is sure proof of a heart trained by the frequent consultation of God's Word. Today, we're going to finish chapter 24, in which we are given much more information about the true state of David's heart. And also how the Lord creatively assures David, once again, of his faithfulness to David. If you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 8 through 22. 1 Samuel 24, 8 through 22. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Samuel looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, ancients says, out of my wicked, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. 
After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Wow. We see here in this text that David argues his case. And then he appeals to God's justice, verses 8 through 15. What a shock. Saul's leaving the cave, and he hears a loud voice. And then he sees David bowed down to the ground with his face in the dirt. And before Saul can even process this, David launches into his speech, in which... He does two main things. He makes the case for his innocence in verses 9 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 15, he enters his plea for the Lord's justice. Now, if you've been paying attention, you realize that you already know what David tells Saul here. About God's providence. Verse 10 Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Did you hear that? Saul, your eyes saw how the Lord gave you into my hand. God's providence. He also tells Saul about the opportunity that this brought. The rest of that verse, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. Now, that's an understatement. We know that there was this huge debate going on between 600, all of Saul's men, and David's men, and David himself. And David had to stand against them. And he didn't just persuade them. That word literally means to be torn asunder, torn apart. And David had to do that with his men to show them the way it was going to be. And he also 
tells Saul about restraint. We read, I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Can you imagine anybody doing that today or even thinking about it? Today we live in a world of, in your face, let me show you how great I am. You're mine, etc., etc., etc. You do not see that attitude from David. And about the proof of it all, he says in verse 11, See, Saul, see my father? See the corner of, the, of your robe in my hand? I cut this off. I was right behind you. You had no idea I was even there. And yet I spared you. The proof. And then David makes his point. How can you keep trying to take my life when there is obviously no harm, revolt, or wrong towards you by me? It's basically what he says there in verse 11. Do you have an answer for that? How can we be so evil towards one another that God has an answer for that? But it does not follow logic. It comes from a heart that is evil. Now what's so telling about David here, which we see clearly in verses 12 through 15, is that David does not and will not seek any change from Saul or a promise from Saul, which shows us exactly where David's security does come from. And I, this is what I want to really hit right now. Because many of us hear this and we think, oh, look, David repented. I mean, Saul repented. No, he didn't. His heart didn't change. And we'll see why as we go through this passage. Just because you recognize that you were evil and you did something to somebody who was treating you correctly doesn't mean that you've repented at all which Saul has done several times over these chapters. David's security does not come from any immediate circumstance. In other words, he's not banking on Saul changing. His security comes from the Lord, and this is a message that each and every one of us desperately need to not just understand but embrace as we face more and more difficult times in the world that we live in. But it works for circumstances in day-to-day life. It works for jobs, family problems, funerals, weddings, celebrations. Our security must be in the Lord. And he is working to do that, accomplish that in his children's hearts. David is not trying to get Saul to change or to make a promise to him so that David can feel secure again. He won't have to wander around being chased anymore. He's not banking on that. David, you see, cast his case upon the Lord. He says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between me 
and you. David is confident that the Lord will bring vengeance upon Saul for him. At some point, there's no timetable. He doesn't give God, this is my order of things. There's no schedule. He trusts God with it. Isn't that amazing? David is confident that the Lord will bring vengeance upon Saul for him in God's time. He says, may the Lord avenge me against you. Now, if we know there is a God and that he is all-powerful and that he created the world, this should be a lot more scary of a statement than, I'm going to get you back. Or my brother is bigger than your brother. Or my father can beat your father up. Or whatever it may be. We all had those little episodes in our life. This is, may the Lord avenge me against you. David's security is in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Not in how his circumstances are going. How about you? How about me? Yet we see David also assures Saul here that he will never come after him. As he just proved. That kind of evil wickedness will not come from David. And that's what David's telling him. And he uses this ancient proverb to put words to it. And David is condemning Saul here. Saul's obsession with David is also so foolish. And David describes himself as a dead dog or a flea. In other words, why are you, the king, coming after me? I've never done you any harm. I'm just a dead dog. I'm a little flea. Why are you bothering with me? You've got Philistines to fight. You've got all these other people to take care of. Do your job. So... David has committed his cause to the Lord because he knows he is secure in the Lord. So if we believe we're secure in the Lord, one way we know whether we really are and we really believe that or not is if we can commit our circumstances, our causes, our situations to God. And if there's peace that goes with that, even in the midst of the frantic I want to, God, I want to, I want to, I'm yours, I'm yours, I'm yours. But we all go through that. Now, haven't you been wondering how in the world David could be so patient as he waits through this process? Well, he's a hero of the faith, Bobby. He's a hero in the Old Testament. I mean, we tell stories about these guys, but we can't be like that. Well, this is such an important truth about the Lord that the Lord wants us to see this in this text. David is confident in the Lord who is faithful and will bring justice for him. And you can be confident, the Lord says, you can be confident in me and trust me as well. That's the whole point. You can. I can. There will be vengeance upon Saul, but the Lord will bring it. David is not going to turn into a vigilante here. The case is in the Lord's hands. 
Paul has something to say about this, short and to the point. I know that's unusual for Paul, but boy, this is. Romans 12, 19. Vengeance, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, how many of us have caveats to that? Well, never doesn't really mean never. Is doesn't really mean is. We make fun of these things, and then we do exactly the same thing. Never avenge yourselves. Now, right here, I'd like to explain something that probably really bothers a whole lot of us. Um, I'd be surprised if there was hardly anybody that wasn't bothered by this. Just we don't admit it very often. Anyone who has spent time in the Psalms, of which David wrote many, has had the, anyone who has spent time in the Psalms has had the experience of recoiling, haven't you, at some of the prayers there that seem so harsh and vindictive. For instance, and you notice how we do this? We have favorite text, we read them, and we always cut out these parts. And if we sing them, usually these parts are cut out. That's the question I'm raising. I think we need to explain it in this context here that we see in 1 Samuel 24. But for statements like this, and this is just a few. Psalm 54, in your faithfulness, put an end to or destroy my enemies. Or Psalm 58, oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions. Oh Lord, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Or Psalm 139. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Okay, anybody in here? Don't raise your hand. Anybody in here just really fine with all this? You've never asked a question about these parts of the Psalms. See, some of us are so bothered by prayers like these that we refuse to even read them instead of trying to figure out why they're a part of God's Word, which makes us kind of like modern-day Thomas Jefferson's who just cut out the parts of the Bible that we find offensive. That's literally what we're doing if we do this. Well, is it possible that our cultural, modern-day, Western sentimentality holds us more captive than we think, and that there is something very important to learn from these kinds of prayers? Is that possible? If you don't say yes, you can't go any farther. You've got to realize this is God's Word we're talking about. Yes, these prayers are passionate. Is that an understatement? and express some of what we could call heat, because I think that communicates what each of us would identify, and, and we're just not used to that. But are they also obedient prayers? Obedient? Are we supposed to take everything to our God? The key is not to let our sensitivity block out the reality of the people of God's suffering. 
and being persecuted and pursued and losing everything and watching wives and children and husbands be literally torn apart or burn at the stake or disappearing and never seen from again for the name of the Lord. Instead, we need to see what's right before our face in these psalms and illustrated by David here in 1 Samuel 24. David and these other psalmists are doing exactly what Scripture commands us to do. Committing vengeance, not to our responsibility, but to the Lord in the face of harrowing circumstances that no person can possibly just avoid feeling anything about. Committing vengeance to God for the evil acts perpetrated against them or God's people or whatever. Do we really want to sanitize prayer so much that we limit the amount of feeling that should be brought before the Lord? Probably most everybody in this room has had some experience in your life where you screamed out to your God because it just hurt so bad or it ticked you off so much it's just not right. And we cry out to God. That should be normal, crying out to God about everything in our lives. What he wants us to do is learn and go through that process of leaving it with him. That's the point here, is it not? Isn't that what David has learned already? Will he need this when he does take the throne? Yeah, and we know he's not perfect and he's going to fail many, many times in many ways. But what would have happened if he hadn't learned this already when he got there? This, you can see it. He's got this. You know how you say somebody finally gets it? David got it. He got it. And it's because he knew how big his God really is. If the Lord's crushed literally and afflicted literally, if the Lord's crushed and afflicted people cannot place their case in his hands and expect him to bring just vengeance in their behalf in his timing see that's our problem we want to live to see it then what hope do they have what hope do we have as God's people if we cannot give those afflictions and the crushed and the nature of Christians literally dying for Jesus' name before Jesus. Only a God who rights the wrongs inflicted on his people can be their well-proved help in troubles. So enough of this fake stuff. Where else can we turn? Who else understands? Who else allowed this into your life so that you could know him better somehow through the process? 
So who can blame these psalmists if their cries up or if their cries are wrapped in emotion? Well, it's a cultural thing. You know, the Jews are really in-your-face kind of people. You know, that's true as a culture. They are. Even American Jews have some of that blood. In-your-face arguments. Winners on the debate teams. Let me express to you how I feel. My high school was one-third Jewish. And I thought, well, this is kind of unusual. And I had some friends. And it wasn't just we live in a hot climate in Houston and, you know, everybody's just letting it go. It's not that at all. Shouldn't be for his people. But there's a restraint there that's not equal to those hot stuff. Okay, we, we need to see to take our hot stuff and give it to him instead of letting it out on somebody else. That's tough, isn't it? Yes, it's really tough. We must commit vengeance to the Lord. And you know what happens if we learn how to do that? It literally surprises us because we're freed up then to look to the Lord to temper our temper. Opposite meanings for the same word. It's English. We're freed up then to do that because we're not holding it in as something we are owning. It's my job to get vengeance, (coughs) which means the bitterness is already growing in your heart. And you're not freed up to do anything but feed feed the monster. Look to the Lord to temper our temper as his faithfulness reigns over our hearts. And then our hearts change and we look to him more often. We look to her quicker when things happen because we know then that he is working through anything and everything. How else could people go to be burned at the stake, see their families carried before them as motivation for them to recount and be singing hymns in peace knowing that they were in God's hands? They couldn't unless they know how great and big and faithful their God was, and unless they knew that it's not all about just what happens here, that it's about being prepared here for something else, or being used here to make an impression that God will use His Holy Spirit to bring someone to know Him. It's a lot bigger than we think, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, David receives... The assurance of God's faithfulness here, another great encouragement, and one of God's creative timing things that's just unreal because it's from Saul. Well, how could it mean anything to him if it was from his enemy? Well, you heard it. I read it. Let's look at it. Saul finally does compose himself so he can answer David after this. And it should strike us that unless the text had already emphasized and made clear that David's focus is upon the Lord's faithfulness and that David's security rested in the Lord, that we might see the end of chapter 24 here very differently. 
when I read that, did you put your hope in the fact, if you didn't know the story, oh, look, Saul's changing. David will be okay. Are you in? Do you know anybody that's in a relationship, whether it's work, family, whatever it may be, where there is no end to it and that you can't get out of it? Where do you take that? What do I mean by that even more? Let me explain it a little more. Well, if you just want to follow David's outward example here, and that's generally how you approach Scripture, then your lesson from this text could be, I think about what, what, are, you, what are you thinking? It could be, well, first, a new strategy here. This is scriptural principles. I just learned them. We just read them. Is that somehow, in these situations, you get your enemy to owe you, like David sparing Saul's life. So first, we just got to get our enemies to owe us something, and then we can exploit that to hopefully get them to see the light and play nice from now on. Does that sound like modern-day politics to you? Does that sound like any kind of strategy that we've ever heard? We hear it every day somewhere on the news. We see it employed in every workplace. Friendships. We see it horribly demonstrated in families. It's manipulation. And it's really ugly in the church. Get your enemy to somehow owe you. So you can exploit that to hopefully get him to see the light and play nice. Is that the message of our text? You know, what's really sad is that some people would even go, hey, I could write a book about this. Full of scriptural quotes and I could put some examples from my own life. But that is such a far cry from the point of this passage. It's blasphemous. There's no other word for it. David's security does not come from any immediate circumstances or responses from Saul. David's security comes only from God himself, the Lord God Almighty. David is confident in the Lord who is faithful, who will bring justice for him, and who even gives unexpected assurances to him when he knows David really needs it. So, even after Saul expresses regret, even after Saul admits that David is more righteous than he is, even after Saul asks David to promise that his house, his descendants, read Jonathan or others, won't be wiped out when David becomes king because that was the way you did things. And you know it's eerily similar to modern day. 
Get rid of your enemy as soon as you get in power. All of them, somehow, some way. David, after all that, in one of the greatest literary deals in the Bible, closings of a chapter, David led his men back up into the stronghold again. The last words of chapter 24. What does that tell you? Well, did David receive anything by all this in chapter 24? Any practical benefit at all? Saul was still after him. Practical benefit? Zip. But what I just said, Saul is still after him, that's the point. David did receive something. God in his special creativity with dripping irony uses Saul's own words to assure David of his faithfulness to deliver the kingdom to him at the right time. That's called peace in the midst of crazy horror. How Saul says in verse 20 after blessing David in verse 19, And now behold, I know that you, David, shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in, <clears throat> in your hand. So David should be extremely encouraged that even his enemy confirms the certainty of the Lord's promise, and he makes arrangements for the rest of his house after he's gone. David is reassured, and I'm going to use the word, but he's not stupid he sees the nature of the man's heart Saul goes home but David wisely takes his men back up into the stronghold where he continues to wait and trust the Lord and the Lord's time, timing not knowing what exactly to expect next but he doesn't need to know all the details he knows who's God and who isn't. Another exciting, crazy chapter. Cry out to your God. Take your issues to him. He will be the one to deliver ultimately. You're in good hands. We are in good hands. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a convicting chapter as we see our own hearts that so easily run after our righteous indignation turning into vengeance and proving people wrong and showing the right way by ways and means that just turn people off. God, may we just see how great you are. That in and of itself will humble us beyond measure. And in order to do that, we need to, to really hunger for your word, which pictures your work, your plan of redemption, unfolded in history from the beginning to the end, showing us you giving your own son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That 
should melt our hearts. It should humble us to the core. We should gladly bow to the ground as we see our true condition and know that only you could meet our need, and you did in Christ. And that's why we sing. That's why we pray. That's why we meet together. That's why we glory in you together. We need you. We need your word. We need your spirit's powerful work in our hearts and in our midst as a church. We need the encouragement that you give to us there and through one another's lives. Oh, Lord, help us see this clearly. Help us take the next steps in our walk with you to put our love for you and our recognition of the true gospel in Christ Jesus alone into practice. Guard us from thinking that we can feel better, we can feel safe, we can be secure in anything other than you and you alone. And how tempting that is. We all, all run so quickly to anything but you usually. God, thank you that you're working in us in this way. Thank you that as we come to your table now that we get your demonstration, what you ordained for the church to do to remember you in a, re in a normal and regular way by seeing the elements that represent your body, Christ's body and Christ's blood, the life that was lived for us, perfectly in our stead we could never do the life that was given in sacrifice acceptable to you so that your condemnation was thrown on Christ your only son who was perfect he took our place and his shed blood covers our sin that you place us into Christ's body and keep us you keep us safe forever as we take this meal pray that you would just sear these truths upon our hearts. Um, hear our thankful cries to you for what you've done and our trust in you for knowing that you have us and that we can confidently walk in perilous times. That we can, instead of responding by wilting and in fear or anger, that we can trust you to work and see many, many people come to you as we care about them with the love of Christ and the message that is the gospel. We just ask that in Christ's name.